Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you for being here today. Happy holidays and happy New Year's to everybody. I have a wonderful guest here today, but I've been trying to get him on for a while. He's just a very, very difficult person to, to get a hold of because he is so busy and he's doing a lot of amazing things. I have Professor Frank Zeranian uh, from the USC Soul uh, the Soul uh, School. Of, oh, well, sorry about this. The uh, USC Public Policy School. Um, he is a professor of governance. He's a director of executive education. He has been a multiple-term mayor in the Rolling Hills, the city of Rolling Hills. Correct, Frank? Rolling Hills Estates. Yes. Yeah. And I'm so sorry. You have so much going on. I'm like, oh my god, I don't even know where to start with all this. He has his JD in law uh, from Western State College and his BA from Long Beach. And I'm going to go over the rest of your history. And I'm so sorry I flubbed it at the beginning because you just got so much. So how are you doing? And thank you so much for being here. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Martin. I really appreciate it. I always enjoy your enthusiasm. And uh, I can understand why your listeners listen to you because you're always exciting to hear. And thank you for the invitation. I'm sorry it didn't work out a number of times, but uh, here I am. And uh ready to be embarrassed. So uh, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> well, first, Frank, I want to ask you, um, you have a very amazing career. And like I said, we're going to go over it little by little. But where were you born and raised? So I was born in Istanbul, Turkey, um, my, um, uh, uh, which was uh, actually on my mother's side, uh, pretty much uh, ancestral grounds going back to almost the Byzantine Empire. Um, on my father's side, it's more center Anatolia um, or Western Armenia, as it was known uh, um, uh, several hundred years ago. Um, and then, um, of course, modern day Turkey. Um, and I left, uh, I went to uh, uh, kindergarten to uh, elementary school in Istanbul to a private uh, Armenian school. Uh, that's where my initial uh, formation was. And my parents did not want me to grow up in Turkey, which was uh, a little challenging for those of us who, uh, um, who were Armenian because uh, we were kind of rising from the ashes of genocide. Um, and the hatred, um, to a degree, even today, continues, unfortunately, in some of those countries uh, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, everyone, but certainly uh, there is a uh, remnants of a nationalistic uh, former young Turk type mentality um, that given the opportunity, uh, you know, would do the same thing they've done in 1915. So uh, my parents did a great thing to send me to boarding school uh, at age 11. I went to uh, Paris. Um, uh, France uh, to a uh, very uh, good um, a school, a very Jesuit style, Catholic fathers who happened to have been in the order of Armenian fathers out of Venice, uh, going back to 1600s, where the Doge of Venice gave them an island, island of San Lazzaro, where they started their uh, mission, so to speak. And their mission was to educate Armenian children uh, in the diaspora. Um, and uh, they've done that very well for years. Um, and that's where I went to school, middle school and high school before coming to the United States. 
So, Frank, you have to tell me. I, there's a huge part that I'm not going to let you skip over. What was your what was what was it like growing up in France? And how, so, you said you went to Turkey when you uh, you went to France when you were 11. What was it like growing up in Turkey and then making that kind of progression to France culturally? What was that like for you? Well, I always speak about this. Actually, I've lived in three different cultures with uh, a total of. Uh, you know, at least four languages that I'm fluent in today, but I've learned seven in my lifetime, um, and four of which I'm still uh, read and write and fluent in. Um, it was hard, Martin. It wasn't easy. 11-year-old, if you can imagine an 11-year-old separating from uh, his parents and going to boarding school sev uh, a couple thousand miles away um, is not an easy thing to do. And, and uh, in Europe, uh, you know, for the United States, perhaps a couple thousand miles today's standards is not that bad. But don't forget, I'm talking about 1970s. Um, I am that old indeed. Uh, so uh, I'm talking about 1970s, early 70s, uh, when I went to Paris. Um, and at that time, that kind of distance was a world away. I used to write letters to my parents. There was no telephone. Um, so, um, you know, how the world has changed. Uh, what I've seen in my lifetime is absolutely astounding. Uh, I didn't have television in my home um, growing up. I used to listen to the soccer games on radio. Um, and we didn't have a landline until I was about 11 years old. Uh, in our home in Istanbul. So I grew up with a very, very old technology, um, almost the technology of the depression era in the United States, in Turkey at the time. But it was difficult to, to make the transition to, uh, for an 11 year old boy, uh, I'm the only child to my parents and to separate from my parents was hard. I remember crying, um, when I went to the dorm dorm room and and pulling pulling the the uh, um, the blanket over my head and crying underneath so that my friends could not see that I was crying. Wow. You know it's know. it's tough to be a, in a boys boarding school because you can't show weakness. And and what was your relationship like with your parents? Did you have a good relationship with your absolutely. parents? Absolutely, absolutely wonderful relationship. To this day, I'm blessed to have my parents. I'm eternally grateful to my parents. I can't thank them enough for their foresight and for their, um, uh, for their selflessness um, in saving my life uh, as opposed to theirs. So can you explain that a little bit? Like, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that they could have easily kept me home because I'm their only child. And, and that's why they had a child, presumably, to be around. So I wasn't around from age 11 to 18. Uh, well, actually really 19 because my parents, at least my mother joined me in the United States when I was 19. I came to the United States when I was 18 to go to college and then law school. But, um, but at the same time, you know, they could have definitely kept me around. I mean, imagine, I mean, uh, I told my wife this and my wife said, there's no way I would do that. Uh, and I don't blame her. I would I would think that 90% of the families you ask, if you had a child, would you send your child away at age 11? I would bet you they'd say, are you out of your mind? 
Frank, did your parents ever tell you why? What was the reasoning behind it? Well, absolutely, because they didn't want me to grow up a second-class citizen. They didn't want me to grow up with the hatred. Uh, because on the streets, you know, we were distinguished, Martin. I mean, when people talk to me about discrimination, I say, well, I've, I've <laughs> gosh, I've lived it. Uh, I know it. Uh, I may not look like someone that we'd be discriminated against, but, but understand that uh, it's not easy to be a second-class citizen. I remember going out of our house, for example, my mother telling me, make sure you speak to me in Turkish. Because if I spoke in Armenian, somebody would turn around and say, lady, uh, does your child speak Turkish? Go home. Like it was somehow not our country or something. Um, so we were considered almost foreigners in, in, in our own land. Um, so that's what my parents saw. That's what my parents uh, uh, really appreciated that, listen, uh, we're already, you know, we are where we are, but at least this child does not have to be us. And my grandmother, of course, is a survivor of the genocide. Um, I grew up with my grandmother um, and the horror of the genocide. So that's why I say when I speak about this publicly that, you know, my parents directly rise from the ashes of genocide. I, you know, uh, kind of, because I grew up with my grandmother up to about age 11. Um, and I, I have seen and, and heard the horror. Um, my, my grandmother had one eye, for example, which she had lost on the death marches. Uh, she survived. Um, in fact, when we get to it, uh, I'll talk about the dedication of a brand new memorial in Rolling Hills Estates that uh, um, that uh, finally uh, I was uh, able to be the catalyst to provide. And, and we can talk about human rights and, and my uh, my work in that domain in in, in few minutes. But uh, um, that is how it started. Uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, I could not wear my baptismal cross, for example, outdoors. Um, because that would not be something that uh, would be palatable to a bunch of people and the hatred would come out. When we played on the streets, when somebody didn't like the, the way the play was going, for example, um, unfortunately, uh, the immediate word that would come to the minds of uh, even children at times um, would be to assault our faith, uh, which... Uh, uh, would be, uh, the translation would be infidel. Um, so instead of cursing my mother or my sister, immediately my faith would be attacked. So that was kind of the norm. Mm -hmm. So in those circumstances, my parents certainly did not want me to grow up. And that's why I say I'm eternally grateful because I couldn't know that. I couldn't uh, make that decision at age 11, but they did. And I am who I am today because of one, the education of my fathers in, in France. Um, they were amazing teachers. Most of my, um, my empathy or human rights or uh, my sense of justice, my values come from there. Uh, you know, I, 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 lo I love 
how passionate you are about this. And, I, and like I said, we're going to definitely get into that work, the work that you did with the United Nations. We didn't even get into that. Like I said, you have such a long history when I was reading your bio. I, and I knew about you before. And, 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 I, and I, I have to say that, you know, um, I know a lot of students at USC and everyone absolutely loves your courses because of the passion and, and the breadth of knowledge you bring. Do you, what do, you, do your parents still live in Europe? Where are they at now? No, no, they're here. They've joined me. Um, of course, my, you know, my, unfortunately, my father's business, because it was very successful at one point, and, and it became more known, and uh, um, he had to leave, ultimately, the country. So um, we lost a lot as a family, but we had one another, and we were able to make an amazing life in the United States. Um, and that's why when I speak uh, publicly again, um, I say that I, that I am an unapologetic American exceptionalist. Um, in my context, uh, I mean no disrespect to anyone. Uh, by no means this is a perfect country. Um, by no means this is uh, uh, an example uh, of, uh, of anything per se, but at the end of the day, in my context, in no country, in no country, I would be an immigrant who would come at age 18 with a brand new language, with a brand new culture, go to university, go to law school, become a lawyer, successfully practice law, run for office, earn votes, become a mayor, teach in one of the best universities in the world, um, be a gubernatorial appointee to the state medical board as a regulator, a vice president of the board. I mean, there is nowhere in the world that can happen. Yeah, and and you, didn't, you didn't mention you going to the Supreme Court, but we'll get into that too. Well, <laughs> but let me ask you this. So when you were in France, what was your what kind of activities were you did, i mean were you into school were you into sports what kind of activities were you into and and what was that like for you high school and middle school in, in it was a very happy life martin um after my first year of crying and uh trying to adapt to my new home um everything became crystal clear i grew up very fast um a funny uh a funny story recently um um, I, I, you've seen me dress, uh, although today it doesn't look like it, but I enjoy uh, dressing well. Um, and a and couple of ladies were commenting on my dress the other day. Oh, my God, you're so color coordinated. You're always wearing this, etc. cetera. Uh, who dresses you? I said, from age 11, me. <laughs> so, yes, so I, I got used to buying my own clothes, uh, making my own budget. Um, indeed, the boarding school, of course, provided for all of my eating and 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 uh, uh, shelter, uh, study, etc. But I had to buy my own clothes. I had to buy my own whatever I wanted necessarily and budget appro appropriately so I don't run out of money because there was no one there to hand me cash. And don't forget, we're talking at that era where sending money it, it, it was there, there was no system there's no zell there is no <laughs> there's no even wire transfer capability at that time 
from Turkey because it was illegal to transfer money out. So bottom line is it was uh, uh, really uh, 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 a very quick growing up, uh, age, 11, uh, age 12, but it was very happy after that. I was a good student um, and I was a good athlete. Um, I played soccer, uh, football in France, um, and basketball. Those were my two. I lettered in two sports. I played varsity in both and club in both. Um, and um, one year we won the championship of Paris in basketball. Um, yes. Um, and one year we won the championship of, of soccer in, in Paris. Uh, my school did. So, so how how did you end up that so how did you end up coming to the united states that's a very interesting interesting story as well yeah it is actually because um it really was not on my radar screen to be honest with you um once i went to europe i was comfortable in europe um and the choices of university i was picking at the time was either in french-speaking belgium switzerland or the south of france those were the universities I was looking at at the time. Um, uh, south of France, because I had cousins who lived in Lyon. Um, um, that's not totally south, but certainly southern to uh, Paris. Um, and I thought that you know I would go near my cousins uh, in Lyon. And it, they have a very good university there as well. Um, and in Liège, which is in 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 Belgium, uh, they also have a very good university. And of course, in in Geneva, where they also have a very good university. These were all francophone. They they were all French speaking uh, universities. So that would have probably been easier for me, because I also I had matriculated in French between middle school and high school. And then my last year in high school. Um, my godparents had moved to the United States, had migrated to the United States, had, um, they were able to uh, uh, come to the United States, invest properly and uh, be successful, uh, obtain their green cards, uh, and then ultimately of course become citizens, which I have done the same path, but, um, but uh, they invited me to come to the United States to visit with them over the Easter vacation period that we had. So I did. Well, they had bought a house in Rancho Palos Verdes with a nice ocean view. Well, you know, <laughs> need I say more that the blue skies of, although today is not that blue, but the blue skies of Southern California uh, that beautiful ocean, um, our roads, our cars, everything was so different to me uh, than Europe uh, that uh, I really said, well, maybe I should try the United States. Um, it was a big risk um, and a, uh, a, a relatively challenging risk because I changed three cultures in my lifetime mm -hmm. and three languages to matriculate. Um, Did you speak English at the time when you came no, over? No, not really. Not really. So how did, how did you find I had taken English uh, in my last two years in France 
and I was strong in grammar uh, because, you know, you learn in an other country, you learn English or any language grammar up, right? So I was strong in grammar, which actually helped, don't get me wrong. But conversational English, no way. Um, so I had to uh, learn a brand new language and go to school. So, so I took, I remember when I went to college, I took all the STEM subjects, which I was very strong in to begin with. And that didn't require much English. So whether it was calculus, geometry, biology, or whatever, right? So I did all of those subject matters uh, so that um, I could, you know, give myself time to learn the English, which I did, of course. And, and, what and I, I now say I speak a little bit of English. So. <laughs> what was your, so what was your major? What did you, when did you decide on your major? Actually, that's funny. You, you asked that question because I started as pre-med. And the reason why I started as pre-med is because those STEM and, and uh, you know, those subjects were much better to me because European education on uh, STEM and uh, uh, sciences is, is definitely, I, to this day, I think, uh, uh, stronger than our middle schools and high schools. Um, so I was able to uh, get enrolled in those courses and I did relatively well. So I said, well, pre-med, I guess. Um, it was not until my last year at Long Beach State, um, which is another good story, by the way, I'll come back to it, uh, why I went to Long Beach State. Um, uh, uh, at Long Beach State, I took a course as an elective course because I was done with most of our, my work. So uh, I had already finished, you know, I worked very hard and I had already taken all that I could take. Um, so the last year I uh, took a course called Debate and Argumentation. My professor was a lawyer, just like me. You know, sometimes in life, very important people come to your life and change the course of your life. He was it. Uh, so he came to me, said, son, I don't know why you're doing pre-med, but you'd be a good lawyer one day. I had no idea what he saw in me. I said, really? He said, I'll write your letter of recommendation. But I said, Professor, it's too late to apply to law school. I can't change major. Yes, he, he said, you can. If you put your mind to it, I know you by now. I had spent an entire semester with him. He said, if you permit your mind to it, you will do it. Look what you've done so far. From a no English, you're in a debate and argumentation class. And I said, okay, I'll see what I can do. So I thought about it and to change major at the time, uh, it was very hard because, you know, I had done all the other stuff, right? So I went to the French department. I knew the chair. I said, professor, would you allow me to test French one, French two, French three, French four? <laughs> and coming to humanities as a major so that I could graduate with that. He said, well, it's never been done before. Uh, but he said, I tell you what, why don't we do one and two and see how you do? And then we'll see. So I waved 
into 16 units of coursework <laughs> by taking all those exams and acing them, of course, uh, and uh, graduating on time to go to law school. That's so, and so, uh, and then how did you get in Long Beach? What did you choose Long Beach? Oh, so when I came to the United States, I knew no one, Martin. And I mean no one other than my godparents, right? This is a brand new country. Just, just imagine me taking you to, I don't know, Senegal, right? I presume you don't know many people in Senegal. <laughs> so, um, so I came to this country. I know nothing about universities, nothing. And my godparents are older. They did not university people. They have two young children at the time. They're not thinking of university. So the only university I knew was UCLA. U-C-L-A. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. So I went to UCLA and applied. And I got in. Um, but the Shah of Iran was toppled uh, right before, right? So I went back to France. And then when I got back in August, because UCLA typically starts later in, in September, um, I came late August, early September to go to school. And my godparents said, we received a letter for you from UCLA. Well, you know, at that time, you know, there's no facts, there's no nothing, right? Um, so I said, okay, I opened the, the, uh, the letter. It says, please come to register for classes, bring your green card and or your citizenship papers. I had neither. So, uh, at least at that time we had applied, um, and I asked, I said, can I bring a letter from the lawyer that we applied? I said, nope. At that time, UC schools were catering to California citizens, primarily. So since the Shah of Iran was toppled a couple of years before, um, all of the Iranian students that had come from uh, Iran had already their green cards um, or some of them their citizenships for that matter. So they got in and there were no seats to be taken. I remember crying at the registrar's office because I know nowhere to go. My English is broken. Um, I guess the woman felt sorry for me and said, look, uh, it's too late now to go to other schools who are on trimester base because they're already in. They're not going to take you. A four-year university is not going to. I knew nothing about the USC, by the way. For that matter, I knew nothing about any other university. So they said, uh, well, um, I can send you to Cerritos College to see. I know the admission uh, person there. Um, I'm sure they'll do something for you. I said, sure. I'm desperate at that point. I'm, I'm you know, I don't know what a college is. I don't know what a university is. I don't know what a two-year is. I don't know what a four-year is. I have no idea. I know it sounds odd, but but. You know, sometimes I reflect back and I say, how much information today our youth have and how much information I did not have, right? And how much information, with how much information, some complain <laughs> and, and how, with no information, I couldn't complain. 
I mean, there's no one to complain to. Uh, so I did it on my own. I, I went to Sirius College. These people felt sorry for me, I guess, and uh, took me in. And I had a couple of great mentor professors at Cerritos that really helped me. I aced my two years there. And when I was going to transfer, I had made a bunch of friends. And they said, we're going to Long Beach State because we want to surf. And I didn't know how to surf or anything like that. And I said, come on, guys. I want to go back to uh, UCLA. So they said, no, 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 no. We want to be na- near the ocean. Mm-hmm. All right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 19, 20 years old at that time, right? And I don't want to lose my friends. Um, so I went to Long Beach State. Now, fate would have it that my first day in class, my wife sat right in front of me. And then did you meet her? Did you meet her in your first class? Absolutely. That is just, that is just an amazing story. Yeah. So, you know, fate in life, you know, so things happen. When people say things happen for a reason, I say absolutely they do. My life is full of those reasons. Well, you know, but you know, Frank, but one of the things though that what I got out of this, and I, I love the stories you tell, and that's one of the reasons I think everybody loves your classes as well, is because you have amazing stories. Is that one of the things I got out of it? It seems you made a lot of this happen too, because you, I mean, who goes to that? Who goes to uh, somebody and says, Hey, can I take three? Can I take three? Can I take four? Four? Can I test out of four levels of French? You know? And so I think a lot of this goes to just your desire to and your drive to overcome a lot of obstacles in front of you. Because you, you, know you, you had a lot of them, more yeah, than most people would Martin, ever have. And, and that's, that. I presume, the definition of resilience, but I don't necessarily credit myself for that. I credit my circumstances. When you're desperate, you do a bunch of desperate things. Uh, And hopefully you do positive desperate things, not negative desperate things. Sometimes desperate people do desperate negative things, commit crimes or or do drugs or whatever. Right. Um, But but I did a bunch of things out of desperation a lot of times, but positively. Right. And was able to shape my life um, from age 11. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And. And I had no choice. So that's why I say I'm not crediting myself because I had no choice. There was no other way. It it reminds me, and I know this is a very common book that I'm just going to quote, you know, Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. I mean, I I was constantly thinking of that because because of your grit and, and like you said, resilience, you, you actually created opportunities for yourself. And it's amazing. It's a. This is exactly why I have the podcast because I think a lot of people, um, when they come up against something difficult, a lot of people don't have the drive and they give up. When someone like yourself said, "You know what? I'm going to keep going," and I don't know if this is going to work or not. I don't. I can't speak the language. The culture is totally different than mine. I didn't even know that I was going to go to school here. 
um, you know, what my family went through in Europe. There's portions, there's people in Europe that absolutely don't like me. Um, you know, where am I going to fit in, in in the world, you know? And this that's why I really, really <laughs> love this story. And then so you went on to go to law school. How was the law school experience for you? Tough. Um, you know, um, you, there, it, to me, my life has been all about when the going gets tougher, get tough. So that's what it was. Uh, law school is not walk in the park. Uh, you're reading um, several hundred pages a week. Uh, typically, you are um, you are being trained to think differently, um, which is what I love. By the way, I've loved my my. I still to this day love my law education. My doctorate in law is really, I would not trade it on anything else, first of all, um, because it made me think the way I think. Um, and it, it really gave me the tools to be who I want to be um, and, and facilitated the rest of my life, really. So it was hard, but then in law school also, I had wonderful friends um, that uh, understood my shortcoming um, and helped me a lot. And uh, by the way, uh, I had four steady friends, uh, strong friends. Three of the four are judges today. Wow. I mean, yeah. So they're, they're very good friends of mine and they took me under their wing uh, in law school and help me graduate um, because, you know, with a fifth year of immersion in English language, reading uh, United States Supreme Court cases uh, is not really uh, <laughs> the thing to do, <laughs> but I did it and, and it was uh, fine. And uh, everything, you know, uh, nothing came easy, but, um, my, my, as I said, uh, you know, when the going gets tough, just get tougher. That's it. Hey, hey, Frank, how, how did you financially make wage your way through that? Were you working at the time? Like, what were you doing to pay for finance all this? So I was grateful to my parents. My parents were able to finance all of my education. Uh, I didn't have to pay for it. Um, I really, uh, so that was, I was very lucky for that. One of the reasons why dad sacrificed and stayed back. Um, uh, my dad came to the United States almost four years after I came. My mom came about two years after I came. Um, and my dad came almost four years after I came, calculating that he needed to earn enough for us to be able to buy a house in the United States and also um, pay for my education. So that was a smart move. And, uh, I'm grateful. So what, what did your, what did your dad end up doing when he came here? Did he work here? Yes. So we founded a very successful company. In fact, I worked through law school in that company. Uh, we were a, uh, um, uh, sportswear garment distribution. Um, most of it manufactured in Europe and we imported and sold. Um, and in fact, I stayed on 
with the business for two, three years after law school, did not start my practice um, until a couple, three years later, um, because our company was doing very well. Uh, we used to sell to, uh, um, at the time, Bullock's, uh, Nordstrom, uh, Macy's, uh, uh, Bloomingdale's, uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, all the majors. Wow. And then, so, so what kind of launch you have now you have to go, I would love to hear about how you got into, you started a lot, you started working in law and then how that kind of emerged to working with the UN and how did all that transpire? And then, so the, uh, the law actually came, um, uh, I was also grateful for that. My godfather, uh, the same person that I mentioned earlier had made great investments, um, and had entered into few real estate partnerships uh, in downtown LA and they owned several buildings at that point. Um, and they're, you know, they were foreign to the, the country and the, uh, they were astute business people, but they did not understand the laws or they did not understand the, uh, um, the, the, the business, uh, uh, financial business culture necessarily. So I became their in-house counsel. Um, that's where I really, um, uh, I was thrown literally into, again, a very complicated um, and uh, multi-million at the time um, enterprise to really uh, handle the legal affairs. Um, we had about um, 200 or so tenants um, in those buildings. We actually built a brand new building. I entitled an entire brand new building, downtown LA at my, what, uh, I was 28, 29 in that range. Um, so not many young lawyers get to do what I was able to do. So I was uh, very quickly in my early thirties already, I was, you know, doing gazillion dollar transactions. Um, which not many young lawyers today uh, have that uh, uh, opportunity. Uh, so I was grateful. And then I formed my own firm um, first, and then I uh, collapsed that firm into a larger firm. And I became a partner in a larger firm. Uh, we were about 35 lawyers um, in that firm. Uh, I did a lot of the real estate work. I represented predominantly building owners, developers, and banks, uh, and some governments also. At one time, I represented about uh, 28, 30 counties of the state of California. Um, and then uh, I represented about 16, 17 cities in Southern California um, in various very large cases uh, involving PG&E, for example, et cetera. Yeah, I, I know all about PG&E up here in North. We, we know all about PG&E. Yep, yep. So, you know what? So how did you get, how did you get involved with the, your work with the UN? And, and then we're going to also get into how you got into public policy stuff with Price. You so do, my you work do, with, you do so my work with the UN actually uh, started a little later uh, after I came to USC. But uh, prior to that, my human rights uh, work began as a very young lawyer. Um, when, uh, in my early thirties, um, one of our Armenian, um, 
lobbying organizations in Washington, D.C., um, had a real estate issue, actually, that I needed to deal with. And they called me and they said, hey, uh, could you come and, and uh, work uh, this issue for us, etc." So that's how it started. And then I took an interest in the lobbying activity of, of genocide recognition, and I became uh, an advocate for that and uh, had a bunch of meetings both uh, in, at the United States Congress, Senate. I knew Ted Kennedy and others that I met uh, uh, through this. Uh, uh, at the time, Senator Biden, too, by the way. Um, so uh, um, I've known a lot of our uh, members of Congress as well as members of Senate. And then um, during the Clinton administration, um, bunch of undersecretary of states that I interacted with. Um, so I did a lot of that work uh, in the, it took to, to uh, push human rights, uh, genocide recognition, um, religious freedom. Uh, those were all things that I worked on uh, as a young lawyer, as a, I, 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 as a volunteer, uh, not, not necessarily uh, for pay. Um, in fact, for no pay, uh, I, because I really enjoyed uh, that part of it and, and the, the desire to help the next generation because I rose from the ashes of genocide was something very important to me. So that's what I worked on. Um, and then, you know, uh, I knew always that uh, teaching, writing was for me uh, because I come from a family of teachers. Uh, my aunt was a teacher. My great uncle was a professor in the Ottoman Empire, um, graduated Roberts College, which was an American college. It was the Harvard of, uh, of uh, the Ottoman Empire. Um, and uh, so I, I came from that kind of a uh, uh, upbringing, so to speak. Um, and, but I did not think it would come that early, to be honest with you, in my career. Um, I was first approached by a good friend of mine at the time. He was the dean of Pepperdine Law School. Um, uh, Richard approached me and, and uh, said, "Hey, uh, you should be teaching uh, for us or or for our policy school." Um, and that year was the year that I became mayor for the first time. Um, so that was 2007 and eight, I believe. Um, because I was first elected in 2003 to the city council and my rotation for mayor came at that time. Um, so uh, I said, well, you know, it's a little too early for me. And then I met with, uh, at the time, Jim Wilburn, who was their dean of their policy school. And actually he handed me a, a syllabus and said, teach this. And believe it or not, again, fate would have it. A week later, I get a call from USC. A week later. Now, Malibu is pretty far from me. Uh, USC is much closer. And, I, and that year, my son was accepted to USC. So again, you know, things align, right? I mean, that's my life. That's how well, it has been. Frank, so who called you from USC? Was this like a cold call? So it was one of my friends uh, who was a lawyer uh, used to teach, was an adjunct faculty member at Gould, at the law school. And her partner taught both at Gould and at SPPD, 
which at the time was School of Policy Planning and Development, now, of course, the Price School. Um, so um, she called me and said, Juliette Mousseau, who was directing the MPA program at the time, needs someone like you, someone from the practice. I said, great. So I had my first interview with Juliette and never looked back. <laughs> So how many years have you been at Price now? 14 years. And you became a, uh, a professor of governance. How did that transpire? So I first was an adjunct faculty member for the first uh, year and a half. And then, um, you know, the opportunity, um, I, I mean, my courses got more and more. Um, and... Uh, um, and uh, at the time, the dean said, hey, uh, can you teach a third course? Well, uh, for an adjunct faculty member to teach a third course is hard. So you need to be at least 50% uh, employed. And I said to Jack at the time, you can't afford me. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's true. I, I, I mean, uh, I was willing to make the sacrifice. I mean, look, I was a partner in a law firm. And... Uh, you know, uh, we were relatively successful. And I can tell you that, you know, I knew I had to take a major pay cut to come. Um, and um, uh, that did not happen. So um, at the end of the day, I, I said, uh, look, uh, I don't think it's going to work out. So Jack said, well, figure something out. Uh, well, it turned out that, again, I figured something out, and I founded my executive education program at Price 12 years ago. So the administrative function and my teaching combined gave me the opportunity to come to Price full time, um, still taking a major pay cut, don't get me wrong, but at least manageable for us to be able to continue our lifestyle as opposed to i mean it's not very elaborate our lifestyle we're very simple people in my family but uh but still at least live where i lived did not have to sell a house or anything like that um so we managed uh and then my program grew and uh um we did better and better and uh, uh here we are today uh, uh expanding into the military sector uh, for example, in my program, my executive program, uh, and um, doing very well. And of course, three years ago, uh, uh, the dean asked me to take over our retiring associate dean's job in overseeing ROTC uh, and, um, and the nautical science program. So now I run three major programs at Price. Um, combined, they represent about... 5% of the entire price school. So what, what is your role and what do you want to teach leaders and executives? So um, in, in our executive program, uh, it's, uh, we have a program called local leaders, which means mayors, council members, city managers. Um, there we teach policy and skills. So policy meaning housing policy, transportation policy, health policy, et cetera, and skills like negotiation, leadership, et cetera. So those are the, the things we do. Um, and then um, 
as far as uh, um, what I teach, um, I teach governance, negotiation, and leadership. Those are my disciplines. Um, and my title, Professor of the Practice, I was the first one to get that title at Price when titles changed about 10 years ago or so um, because I was first going to be called a senior fellow uh, because of my seniority in age and, and, and experience. Um, but it made sense to change a bunch of titles. USC is, was looking to change titles at the time. So I got the first title and uh, Elizabeth Grady at the time was our vice dean. She's now our acting provost um, at USC. She said, what about governance, Frank, since uh, you're a mayor, et cetera, you have a law background. Uh, and I said, sure, that fits. So I became a professor of the practice of governance. Uh, and in terms of leadership, and I, I'm going to ask you, this is a loaded question here. Um, do you think the leadership skills have evolved or changed? If you look at leaders in the past, just say 10 years ago, and you juxtapose that to now, and if they haven't, what do you think makes a good leader? And what do you think are some of the challenges that, that good leaders have? Wow. You, you're talking about a semester work of uh, coursework here, and you want me to answer it in, in two minutes? Is that what you want? Uh, for Christ's sake. I set you up. Uh, I'm setting you up here. Yeah, you totally. Um, but no, I, first of all, leadership is developed. It is not taught. I can't teach you leadership. Um, you can only be a leader once you raise your hand and say, I want to lead someone. And I don't care if it, that person is one person or a million people. A lot of people mix these bags, right? They claim, they think that by leading millions of people, you're a good leader. And when you lead two people, you're nothing. That's not true. Uh, it's a myth to say that leadership is about ranks, blood, or family, or titles. It's a total myth. And in fact, I gave a speech once in South Africa, and I said, I consider my mother a leader of one. And to me, that's huge because I am who I am because of the values she taught me from zero to 11. She led me during that time. So to me, that's leadership. She didn't have to lead countries or armies. So the skills uh, or that, that, uh, that a leader must have or need to have have not changed. The style of leadership has or can change, right? So uh, the humility aspect of a leader, the uh, transformational aspect of a leader, or the authenticity of a leader, right? The transparency of a leader, the communicative qualities of a leader, all those have not changed. You still need to be humble to be a leader. You still need to be authentic to be a leader. In fact, unfortunately, this is the kind of stuff. I mean, you've seen it happen not long ago in at LA City Hall, 
with three council members um, who breached an amazing or violated amazing trust of the people by not being authentic, not, not by, by violating uh, uh, the first requirement of leadership of being authentic. And, and obviously they weren't because they were hiding something. Um, I always say to, when I teach these courses, I say, look guys, public service is not for everyone. If you don't accept psychologically the notion of being public at all times and being authentic at all times, don't do it. One day it'll come out. You'll be caught one day, especially in today with all the technology, recordings, etc., etc. In fact, I say to them as an example, God knows how many emails or text messages I deleted before sending them to my own wife. Because I thought if someone sees it in the out of context, I may be called out various things. Wow. That's very powerful. Wow. Amazing. So at the end of the day, authenticity, you know, I am who I am. I have nothing to fear. Um, and I say to people, look, practice your, if you're in public office, and I've been in public office since 2003, and I challenge anyone to show something since 2003 that I've uh, practiced that basically would say that, no, 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 Frank is just uh, uh, full of it or or that he's misrepresenting or, or doing, no problem. Go at it, go find something. I say this comfortably because I sleep at night, because I'm authentic, because I know what I've done or I know what I've not done. Now people can lie that, you know, I, I can't stop that, but it will be a lie. It won't be a, a, a truth. Frank, let me ask you, if somebody wanted to become a better leader, how would they do that? And I, and I know, I know we're going to talk about this, the way they can contact you and obviously taking classes through a school like Christ, through a, through a program you run, but what, what kind of books and what would you recommend someone to become a better leader? You know, uh, uh, to me, uh, well, uh, the, the literature is, is plenty. I mean, there are uh, uh, amazing literature out there, both from practitioners and academics as well. Um, you know, I, 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 um, uh, really value the uh, the practitioner side of, of leadership as well, uh, and 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 the uh, uh, and the theoretical more uh, theoretical as applied type of books just as well. So, uh, you know, there's gazillion of them out there. I'm not going to enumerate them here, but um, I, I have a couple of them in my syllabi that I uh, I choose. But you know, to be honest. They're all out there. There's plenty of them out there uh, that can be seen. Um, you know, people like uh, Peter Drucker, Jack Welch, um, um, uh, the uh, Stephen Covey. Um, you know, and then you have Bob Denhart from our school, for example. Um, Stephen Sample, uh, Warren Bennis. I mean, these are. I mean, I can go on and on with names uh, um, that. Uh, uh, that uh, have written uh, books about, and then there's of course uh, uh, books about uh, um, various types of uh, 
leadership in, in uh, um, both genders as well, women leading. Uh, um, uh, there's some, some great research on that topic as well. So, uh, you know, it's, it's important to uh, have a variety of things to look at really uh, um, uh, in order to uh, get a good flavor of it. Uh, so there's plenty out there. Well, uh, it's hard to mention all of them, but well, well Frank, me, I, have, I have to tell you one thing, Frank. And I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I know I only have like maybe 15, 21 minutes because I know you have a meeting. You gotta get to this. I've gotta get this in. You have a very unique and amazing way of teaching leadership through horses. Ah, yes. And, and, and I'm gonna say this, and I really think this is one of the things that you really pushed in your lecture, is that, uh, and you can talk about this more about the horse. They know that horses are very sensitive to the authenticity, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and to, so, and so, yeah, I would love for you to talk about that. Yeah, so I, I chose that. In fact, you're right. Um, I teach a course in our doctoral program and, and in, in our master's of leadership program um, using horses. I've been around horses all my life. Um, as a young child, my father had a very good friend who uh, actually uh, um, uh, had a... Uh, a great horse farm outside of Istanbul. Um, and also, uh, actually, where I live is an equestrian community. So I've lived here over uh, 30, 35 years. Uh, so I've been around horses a lot. Um, you know, uh, in my backyard, there are horses, uh, uh, not mine, but uh, uh, our neighbors. But so I'm around horses all the time. So I observe and ride and all of that. So I always knew that and I had to study, of course, a horse. Um, and a horse, most people think that a horse is an animal uh, created really for transportation purposes. Uh, that's not true. A horse is prey. Uh, a horse is on, his, on this earth to be prey. Uh, therefore, the horse psychology is a, a prey psychology. In other words, a psychology that I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to run when I am attacked to be eaten. Um, and the horse is an animal that knows how to communicate um, very simplistically. And if you communicate properly to a horse, the horse will build a level of trust with you to trust his life or her life and yours together. But if it doesn't, a horse will take over. So that's why we call a spooking of a horse, right? And when a horse is spooked, it takes off, right? That's the first instinct of a horse. That's the prey mentality. So I've studied horses for a long time and I figured I can mix my literature and my knowledge in leadership into teaching it with horses because I drive home two very important points. I guess three, communication, relationship, and trust. Three ingredients of leadership. So if you don't do these three things with a horse, the horse will take over, will no longer trust in your leadership capability. And I was able to create this course and I was able to teach this course literally with horses. I bring over an entire morning, about four hours, uh, 
people to our city hall and our uh, horse corral right next to it and bring a couple of horses or three horses um, with the help of a couple of cowboy friends of mine. Uh, <laughs> we basically teach our students how to communicate with the horse. We don't let them ride it. Uh, USC will kill me if I did that. Uh, um, but, um, but we show them how to communicate with horses. I, we show them how to lead the horse, literally take the, 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 the horse and lead the horse. And through, uh, we design, you know, uh, obstacle courses, etc. We put food in front of the horse to try to, um, divert the interest of the horse. But if you correctly lead that horse, the horse will do what you want to do, even if the food is there. So this is what we teach. Trust me, it's one of my best remembered courses anywhere. Oh, I, I have to tell you, I learned so much um, when I took that course. And and I think I, one of the things I really remember what you were saying that the, the horse can sense if you're not confident. Yes. If you're not a confident leader. And um, and I and I really, really got that out of I think all of us were so impressed and we really got a lot of that out of that course. And and now I get to do my fun part because I, I know you have a meeting soon. And this is I'll, I'll try to make these really quick because I want I love to get these in at the end. And I can and Frank, I can see I can be I I'm telling you right now, I probably have a list. I could go on and on with you all morning for two. Or three we can do another good. session. Don't worry. Yes. Yes. Okay, so here we go. These we didn't even talk about the UN, so we we'll, maybe we we'll do a session on the UN. Yes, we're gonna do our second, our second and third sessions here. Okay, here we go. We'll make these kind of rapid fire. What would the older Frank tell the younger what? Frank? What would the older Frank tell the younger Frank in terms of advice if you could give it? Um, I I, I think I would say keep the faith and. Um, uh, continue to look for answers, um, remain authentic, um, love instead of hate, um, you know, always be appreciative of, of what you've got, um, and, and, and love this country as I do. If you could meet one person in your life, who would it be? And what would you say? Nelson Mandela. And what would you say? I'm humbled. I'm amazed. What is your favorite bike ride? My favorite bike ride? Um, I would say my regular one is from Palos Verdes to Santa Monica or towards Malibu, which I love. I love the OC ride as well. Uh, in other words, going from here to uh, Newport Beach, Balboa Island, etc. So that's about 65, 70 mile ride. Love it. Uh, and what's your favorite thing about being a dad? Oh, my God. Um, that's a session in and of itself. Um, well, uh, first of all, I am extremely blessed and lucky to have had uh, my best friend from Long Beach State. Um, to be the mom of, of our two children who are amazing. Um, our son uh, is a, if you've gone to a USC football game and you've enjoyed your experience, 
our son is responsible for that. He he produces all of the um, live events for football at USC. And in fact, he's in Orlando today uh, producing AVP volleyball. Um, he will be in Las Vegas. He was in Mexico City last week producing the Monday Night Football. Um, so he's a producer of live sports events. And that skill he learned at USC. Wow. Um, and he became, he's eternally grateful for USC for giving him that skill. And of course, he became very good at it. He's an amazing producer. He writes the scripts of the live events and he actually implements them. Wow. Our daughter is a lawyer like me. Also USC graduate, went to Annenberg for undergrad, master's at Annenberg, and then went to Loyola Law School. Um, loves to write, just like me. Uh, her second law review article just got published. Um, uh, the first one was at Loyola Law School. The second one was at Mississippi Law. Um, so uh, very blessed. Uh, Jody did a great job with our children. Um, I can't take too much credit for them. Um, I was definitely perhaps the, the, the value um, and, and instilling in them um, the, the difficulties that perhaps I faced. They saw their father um, uh, perhaps uh, come through all of these things and uh, they're grateful for their life. And I'm very proud of that. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Guilty pleasure of food? Ice cream. <laughs> okay, that's your weakness. Uh, favorite music when you're writing? Oh, I still listen to very much uh, music that I grew up with in France. Wow. Uh, so people like uh, Charles Aznavour, Michel Sardou. These are people that I listened to uh, when I was 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. And I still listen to them. And Frank, at the end of the day, when we look, when you're no longer on this earth, and this is, this is like the best question I, I have, the, the best question I give to people, but it's also the most difficult too. Um, when you're long, no longer on this earth, what do you want to be remembered for? When they, when they say Frank. I, I want to remember, I want to be remembered for um, my humanistic values, uh, my care for my fellow man, uh, for the law, for this country. Um, and, and I, I want my life to be the example of what can be, um, I'm very blessed. Uh, I say this with the greatest level of humility. I went through a lot of toughness and a lot of difficulties in my lifetime. And I've talked to you about some of them. Um, but I also recently was able to see a first of its kind memorial rise right at the entrance of City Hall in Rolling Hills Estates, dedicated to the memory of the victims of the Armenian Genocide and also to the survival of those who survived and their resiliency, their will to survive. That'll stay there forever. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, that was done through private donations. I'll still raise funds for that. and. Uh, I'll remain true for that. We're building a website to educate people on men's inhumanity to men. Um, and as I always say, I can't bring my ancestors back, 
but I can certainly work to prevent from the next one from happening. And nothing dismays me more than seeing human suffering. And you've seen perhaps some of my blog articles that I publish in my faculty's perspectives pages um, about Ukraine today, about Armenia today, the Russian aggression, the Azerbaijani Turkish aggression. Um, I can't stand seeing human suffering and I don't care who they are or the Uyghurs in China. So it really doesn't matter or Rwandans or, or various African nations who uh, suffer as a result of authoritarians who do what they do because they can. And because the rest of the world has learned to remain silent because of the rest of the world remains in their hypocritical ways of their interests and not care for their fellow human beings. That's what I want to be remembered for. Wow, it's amazing. And Frank, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, if they want to go take a class at USC or, or um, you know, and, and get themselves involved with some of the stuff that you're doing program-wise, what's the best way for them to contact you? Well, I mean, I'm very easy to find, uh, Martin. You go to the website of Sol Price School of Public Policy under faculty. You click on my name, my email address, my phone number. It's all there. Well, thank you so much for being here, Frank. It's really been an honor to have you on here. You have an amazing history and you have so many amazing stories. I, I think I only, I probably only got over like one or two percent of them. So we'll have you on again. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. Join us for our next uh, podcast and keep learning. And have a wonderful holiday. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Martin. Take care, Frank. All right. See you. Bye-bye.